Back to Peds Ortho, brought to you as always by Posna. I am Carter Clement from Children's Hospital in beautiful Uptown New Orleans, and as usual, I am joined by my three co-hosts. This is Josh Holt from the University of Iowa. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University, and Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. Tonight, we are in the midst of the Final Four in the National Championship, in fact, which uh, we did not plan very well. We've got a lot of UNC ties on this podcast, so uh, go Tar Heels. And tonight, we are joined by Dr. Peter Newton from Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Newton, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot believe we haven't had you on the show before. Well, it's a great pleasure, especially to have four Rady fellows on the screen with me to, to talk to and listen to. We always uh, say that people need no introduction, but tonight we're actually not going to do an introduction. We'll skip all your presidencies and vast accomplishments, and let's just talk a little bit about you. You love being on the water, especially fishing, travel. Have you done anything fun lately along those lines? What have I done lately? I... I really do enjoy fishing. I have two fishing trips a year that you will not be able to schedule into. One of them's in December, one of them's in February. And Harry Shufflebarger invites me down to Costa Rica to go uh, marlin and uh, sail fishing with friends. And it's, uh, it's a pretty special experience. So we've been at it for a number of years and I am learning to become uh, better at catching uh, billfish. It's a lot of fun to, to work on that. And so twice a year, I indulge myself with that. That I, sounds I indulge myself, intense. but really Harry indulges me. <laughs> and just briefly, you know, what is new at Rady Children's Hospital? What, what are you most excited about right now with Rady Orthopedics? Well, obviously we're in a little bit of a midst of transition time with a couple of big moves going on. So the year before last, Dr. Wenger moved into at least from a clinical practice retirement. Uh, he still uh, joins us for conferences and adds his commentary. Uh, and Dr. Mabarak has done the same recently now as well. Uh, and he's he's joining us uh, for conferences also. And uh, with, with Dr. Yaze moving and taking the big job at Seattle Children's, that obviously uh, has been a change for us and uh, for my personal practice, a uh, substantial change. But uh, Mike Kelly has uh, joined our team uh, of late to fill Bert's spot, and uh, we're excited to have him on board. He brings quite uh, a new flavor, and it's been really uh, fun to have his thoughts both on the research side and clinical side and education side interjected into our practice. So he's been a great addition. Well, speaking of research, obviously you guys out there are insanely productive and have such a strong team, both the physicians and also all of the uh, associated researchers. And normally on this show, we pick a recent uh, article and we chat about it and ask you some questions, but we're going to do things a little differently today because when I went to look for a recent article of yours, I found about 30 in the last six months. And so instead of really delving, well, I was just thinking it'd be fun to you know briefly touch on a bunch of different subjects. So the first one I came across was from last month's Spine Deformity, the SRS Journal, and it was named To Tether or Fuse. So obviously a hot topic. In this paper, the, the name of the paper sort of said it all. It said significant equipoise remains in the treatment recommendations for idiopathic scoliosis. So the real question for me 
was aside from those patients that show up to you because you are Peter O. Newton and they want to talk about a tether, who do you recommend a tether for if anyone's sort of straight up when they present and it's, you know, an AIS case? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, the way you pose the question is correct. I, I mean, there are people who find me to ask about a tether and there are people who just present because they have idiopathic or juvenile idiopathic scoliosis. And they might be a good candidate, at least in my mind, for tether. And so I present the option to them. I, I do think there are still there's still substantial equipoise in my mind for a group of patients that are I got to say, it's a pretty small group, but for that population, I think it, uh, it offers a, a really reasonable option. And so those are the 45 to ideally 55, probably 60 or 65 substantial growth remaining people. Uh, and so for me, that still is this group that has got at least open trirated cartilage. And, and maybe if they don't, they've got a really, uh, a much smaller curve. So Sanders two and three patients. Uh, I've, I've realized that I've tethered some Sanders one patients and had some pretty spectacular results, even in that population. But it's, it's this idea of trying to figure out who and when, uh, how tight, all of those questions that remain around tethering are really important. And uh, there's a lot of work to do to figure out who are the best candidates and and who will have good outcomes? Maybe if, if you've only gone the last six months, you haven't uh, pulled the ones where I've found out that uh, I didn't do very well in uh, in all my early cases. So there's a lot of good work to be done in that in that field, and and I think uh, at least for me, there there remains a population in which in which the equipoise is pretty real, and I. Uh, I do offer it to, to those patients who show up uh, who I think are ideal candidates. And of those, let's just make a guess, a quarter or a third, consider it reasonable, uh, as opposed to those who come in or Zoom in or whatever these days uh, to get an answer, where no matter what I say, it's at least 90% I want to tether, no matter whether they're a good candidate or not. Yeah, you and I have talked a little bit um, as I've been trying to figure out my own tether practice. And I, I know you've been doing some interesting stuff with partial fusions and tethering lumbar curves and more open stuff. I'm curious, is that something that you're still evolving or do you think that maybe that's where it can play a bigger role when you're trying to spare some lumbar motion or things like that? Well, that's a great point, uh, Josh. The The reality is, is that the lumbar spine is, is, is the part of the spine that we really, really, really want us to not fuse. And uh, at least in my initial experience, I have limited my tethering to the thoracic spine where, where maybe the gains aren't so big, but neither are the costs. And so um, I think it's a little safer place to begin and understand and learn. And there's still some benefit there for sure, but the lumbar spine has got to be where, where the money is. But at the same time, the tether has a finite life. It breaks. The growth of the lumbar spine is a little faster, or at least not, maybe not faster, but larger. The vertebrae are bigger, they grow more. Uh, and so geometrically it, it makes for less remaining growth can still have an impact. So it's a little harder space in some ways because 
I think we put more demand on the lumbar motion. There's more likelihood, at least in my opinion, that that tether will break. Uh, and the predictability is, uh, is not quite as clear to me. The lumbar curves have a lot more component of the disc being the deformity. And we really only modulate the shape of the vertebra and what happens to the disc ultimately is a, a whole nother question. So anyway, in, in the end, yes, I, I love the idea of lumbar tethering, but I'm, I'm not confident that we have an implant today that will accomplish that. But your suggestion that the hybrid technique might have a role, I, I think that's not a bad intermediate step. And the concept here is that we, we take a patient who we feel uncomfortable doing a selective thoracic fusion because the lumbar curve is too big or too rotated or too something. And we do a selective thoracic fusion anyway. And then we, we supplement that with a lumbar tether. I think in that scenario, we are in some sense, sharing the responsibility of the lumbar curve correction, partially with the fusion that, that we do above it, and partially with the lumbar tethering that we do within it. And we just don't require quite as much of that tether when we do it that way. And so we just are trying to fine tune the, the, the lumbar curve response to selective thoracic fusion. That I think has some real potential. I, I, I do. I've been doing that for a while and who knows, that may be something that wanes just as fast as it showed up, but you never know. I love the idea. I'm glad you mentioned that. That certainly seems like the, the holy grail of correcting sagittal balance while sparing motion segments. So next up, European Spine Journal, February 2022. You were involved in a study on the classification of scoliosis braces. Um, at the end of the day, the study basically classified braces based on the location of the brace, rigidity, plane correction, et cetera. It's a useful way just to sort of standardize your thinking and discussion and research on braces. Um, but I just wanted to ask, at this point, what's your, your go-to brace? Do you like the Boston style or nighttime bending or what are you using most regularly? I, I use a full-time brace. I'm not a, a nighttime fan. Uh, I do think that uh, more hours makes a difference. And I'm happy with a brace that a brace maker can make in which there is excellent in-brace correction. And if that occurs, I am happy. Uh, unfortunately, there are all sorts of names, brands, theories uh, about bracing that all compete with each other. Uh, some of that article, I think, was designed to kind of... Uh, address some of that and understand some of that. But the reality is that most braces made by modern brace makers today are quote 3D. They have some component of three-dimensional thought process and correction. They're not just purely a coronal plane or coronal and sagittal. They're, they're, they're trying to take into account some aspect of the rotational deformity in the axial plane. You know, some do it well and some don't what you call the brace and how many names you attach to it, I'm not sure is nearly as important as, as what it actually does. And obviously there are all sorts of proposed theories about why this system works better than that system. It's all over the place. And that, that article was hoping to generate some consensus with regards to at least how to describe some of the terms that we use uh, to describe bracing. But my current strategy is to order a custom TLSO from a brace maker who is experienced at designing a brace that will generate three-dimensional correction. 
So I'd love to hear a little more about why not the nighttime ones. I, I like the nighttime ones. Patients seem to be patients seem oh, to be happier with the them. <clears throat> yeah. Um, is it just well, the hours? I mean, is there nothing to be said for the you know amount of the more correction over less hours? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a fair question. Um, I guess I've over time become convinced that the more you wear the brace, particularly in upright daytime hours where the forces that are causing, I think, the majority of the progression occur due to the asymmetric loading. I think that probably is more of a daytime phenomenon. Uh, I really do. And, you know, and what happens at night, you can say, well, that's when everybody grows at night, when the forces aren't as much and things grow more, they're unloaded. But I, I really do think that to the, to the extent that you can normalize the forces the majority of the day, uh, night and day, I think the better you're going to do. Uh, and, and I've been really convinced and obviously, uh, Stu and Lori's data, uh, from Josh's place has been such an important landmark, uh, study to tell us that bracing does work and that hours matter. Now, again, remember what their paper says when you, when you start to say, well, we don't need that many hours. That's how many hours, things plateau to prevent surgery. But if you want to use a brace to really limit progression and maybe even correct scoliosis with growth modulation, I think you need to wear it a lot. And the more committed I become to bracing as a result of that data, the more convinced I am that you can, in the right patient at the right age, actually take people the other direction with their curves. And to do that, you know, to take a 40 degree curve to 20, it's not an everyday occurrence, but uh, it happens. And, uh, and I think that's a huge change in the natural history for that child. So I think it's worth giving it a really good brace maker and a lot and a really good patient, the opportunity to wear it a lot. More yeah. Than- and I would, I would, you know, I'm obviously biased being um, at the university of Iowa with Dr. Dolan and Dr. Weinstein. And I would say a lot of subgroup analyses and deeper dive into even the brace data would say that there is a big cohort of patients who need more than that 13.9 hours that that you get better correction and stabilization in a lot of patients that need more. So I'm certainly on the same train that the, the more, the better. All right. Next up, another spine deformity article from last month. This one with uh, lead author, Dr. Boachi. surgical outcomes of severe spinal deformities exceeding hundred degrees or treated by VCR. So my question for you is, are there patients out there who need, need, need VCRs or can almost everyone get to, you know, a livable, acceptable alignment with less invasive techniques these days? Yeah, I think that's a really great question as well. And, and I think it really depends on what deformity you're talking about. So if you're talking about adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, particularly in the primary curve, no, I, I don't think there's really an indication for VCR. Once you start to get into the multiply operated revision situations, particularly those that may start as an early onset scoliosis, particularly angular deformities that may, in fact, be causing neurologic deficit, then I think absolutely the spinal cord uh, requires the respect of a surgeon who can remove that vertebra and and give it its life back. That is um, fortunately a relatively rare event. 
So for the vast, vast, vast majority, as you suggest, we manage these without doing a vertebral column resection or, or a three column, leave the spinal cord dangling between air uh, over a large segment type surgery. That's not, it's not something that should be a routine practice unless you have a very exceptional practice. And so for most of us, that's much better be handled by multiple level releases anterior and or posterior uh, together with some halo gravity traction to really do amazing things on big deformities a little slower and more distributed and distributed over more levels in a much safer fashion awesome all right next up one to uh, keep julia awake from jpo coming out next month elastic intramedullary nails in the treatment of pediatric length unstable femur fractures um, so you did this along with uh, senior authors, Andy Pinnock, uh, who I think we all also consider a, a friend and mentor. And the conclusion of the study was basically that nails are okay for length unstable fractures. Have you abandoned that sort of length unstable dogma or are you still you know, doing submuscular plating and other techniques for some length unstable? Uh... Wait, wait, let me back up. How much trauma call are you taking? <laughs> That's an even better question. <laughs> Yeah, not enough to know how to put a submuscular plate on. So <laughs> I did take uh, a little bit more trauma call during COVID, but uh, uh, Dr. Wallace has uh, gone easy on me lately, uh, and I'm a little bit in the backup role. But I was taking—I took some primary call during COVID. It was actually a lot of fun. But so are you not still taking the first month or two of the year? With yeah, the, yeah, with the that. new fellows. Okay. Well, I don't know. I'm about to find out. I guess it's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> have to get ready for that one. So I, I, I have been taking some call. Uh, I still feel comfortable around uh, most of the long bone stuff. There's a few things that still make me nervous. Like I hope they make all you nervous too. Um, but I, I don't think I ever left the or, or was uh, a believer in the length and stable concept from the beginning. I think we always thought that with good canal fill and a cast, we could handle anything, not, not anything, but nearly anything that would come along. And so the idea of the long oblique, if you put in little skinny nails in a long oblique and allow the canal to translate because you haven't filled it up, then for sure it can shorten. But all you need to do to stop that is to fill up the canal. And uh, another way to do that, of course, is to keep them off of it with a little bit of a cast as well. So obviously there are there are severe fractures in which length unstable means that the middle third is completely comminuted and then blown to smithereens. That That's not what we're talking about. But um, I, I don't think I ever bought into the concept that length unstable means you couldn't find a way to make intermedullary rods work. Julia, is that the uh, correct answer? <laughs> I, I certainly don't deem myself appropriate to decide if it's <laughs> correct or not, but, um, but I would totally agree with you, Dr. Newton. I think, um, you know, training at Rady where uh, flex nails are used regularly and I think we're all taught excellent technique, that's, that's the key. It's a technique-dependent surgery. And the failures that I think you see with a lot of flex nails are due to failures of technique, um, not necessarily because of the fracture. Um, certainly, I totally agree with you. Yesterday, I fixed an absolutely blasted, comminuted, long, segmental thing, you know, that would have been like 
the extremes of flex nailing. And so I put a submuscular plate on it and, you know, you just have to know your, your techniques when they're appropriate. But I, I do think that most things can be flex nailed successfully. And if you're worried about it, put a cast on it for a couple of weeks. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. So totally do, agree. Do any of those length unstable ones for you get a, uh, get stainless steel nails or are you pretty much titanium for everyone? I use titanium for almost all of them, but I think stainless definitely has a, has a role. Uh, the heavier kids particularly, I'll put stainless in. All right. Thank you for indulging me. So next up, uh, back to spine deformity. This one's another January of this year, 2022. And it is entitled, Are Patients Who Return for 10-Year Follow-Up After AIS Surgery Different from Those Who Don't Return? Um, the conclusion was, no, there's no major difference. So we can safely assume that the 10-year studies apply to those patients also who are lost to follow-up. So Dr. Newton, this just made me think sort of outside of the research, how long is it important for you to see AIS patients uh, back post-op? Well, I don't live outside of research. I only <laughs> live inside of research. And, um, and my brain only wants to know what is happening with my patients at 10, 15, 20 years, and now 25 years. So I, I think it's a, it's a fair question from the standpoint of at what point do you, should you back off just from a healthcare utilization standpoint, the routine follow-up, or at least at what rate should that be reduced in people who are otherwise um, doing great? Uh, and fortunately, most of them are really doing great. I've had my, my latest long-term uh, late infection show up at 11 years. But again, those people would show up at 11 years. They didn't come because I had an 11-year visit schedule. They showed up because they, you know, there was a there was pus rolling out of the bag at 11 years. So most of the bad things, as long as people know, will come back. I think the other challenge we have uh, as being children's uh, doctors is that a lot of them graduate out of our system. And the transfer of care from pediatric to adult spinal deformity within a community is highly variable. Uh, and kids, you know, are uh, in our practice at some point go away or leave their the leave the nest and may or may not come back. And and where they had their surgery is not necessarily where they live. And so, how do we? And what's the right amount of? I guess that's a research question I should put in my on the list, but I don't have that one uh, on the list right now. I've been too busy trying to figure out what happens at 25 and 30 years for the patients that I operate when I first started practice. That's awesome. Let me know when you figure it out. I'll be ready. Um, the next two articles I came across, uh, and this was kind of a, a, a cool little bunching of articles. We're both in spine deformity, just like the last one came out online in January of this year. And um, they both looked at basically how the vertebral bodies grow and how growth changes with uh, anterior vertebral body tethering. One was with the HARM study group and the other one was in your group. So that was a, a kind of cool juxtaposition. They basically both found that the concept works, that the growth changes uh, as you would expect, or at least as you would hope. So I just want to use that as a jumping off point to ask sort of what techniques you're using now. Are you using the new sort of brand name, the Tether product, or are you still using the same setup that you were using when we were with you a few years ago? Yeah, fortunately, the off-label has become on-label and <laughs> the, the tools have actually been designed to do the job. So yes, I'm absolutely using the, the Tether. Uh, it's really the only product available in the United States to use. So yeah, that's that's what I've moved to. It's interesting your conclusions that those two things that we found that it both worked. I, I would say that 
you're right. In some of the patients, it worked. Uh, and we actually, in, in our in that small series from Rady, we had half the patients who didn't correct, which we kind of used as a control group, if you will, for tethered patients who didn't improve compared to tethered patients who did improve. And I guess I would say the interesting thing from that study was that neither group, those that got better or those that didn't get better, neither of those patients had growth on the convex side under the tether. They both had about 23 or 22 or 23 millimeters of segmental length per vertebra slash disc, and they didn't get any longer. The only thing that was different was in those that got better, the concave side grew and caught up and almost matched the 22 or 23 millimeters. And the and the group that didn't improve stayed stuck. It's, I don't know what it was, 16 or something. So I think we have demonstrated that you can find growth modulation in patients who are tethered, but I'm still frustrated by the fact that I can't predict in who I will find it <laughs> and when I will find it and with what reliability I will find. Yeah, to me, that's the most important part of the new tether system is just the data collection, right? I mean, there's so much so much that we just don't know. Whether you can modulate growth, like you said, or whether you can do it in any sort of reliable and predictive way, that's, that's what I think we're not sure of. But collecting data and, you know, to your previous point, I think that's the hard part is a center like you and a center like Rady, who does such a good job collecting patient information and data and, you know, your clinic visits aren't just a quick chat, how you doing? Okay, bye. But it's bringing them back at 10 and 15 or 20 years and gathering information that then you can then study. And that's, to me, that's really the point of those long-term follow-ups is to have places like Rady that are really collecting all the data. Whereas someone who's not collecting any data and just saying hello and getting an x-ray, I don't know that long-term follow-up at a center like that is being all that efficient in healthcare management. But yeah, with the tether, I mean, I, I think that's the key. So I, I applaud the the company who is trying to collect all that data and help the, the knowledge keep going forward. And you're obviously a big part of that. Well, I appreciate that. It really is important. And especially as new technologies are brought forth, all, all new technology, uh, we need to understand what and how it's behaving. And we need to continue to question uh, what we think is true and, uh, and the dogma that uh, we've been taught also has to be questioned with that same scrutiny so that we just keep uh, moving the arrow and getting better. Awesome. All right. This next study that I came across was from Spine Deformity, came out online uh, at the end of last year. And um, you and your co-authors called it distal adding on an AIS results in diminished health-related quality of life at 10 years following posterior spinal fusion. And um, basically... There are a bunch of different uh, definitions out there of distal adding on, and the team compared them and looked at a bunch of patients to see which ones of those definitions were actually associated with uh, patient-reported outcomes and found that only one of them was, which was uh, Bob Cho et al.'s paper back from his fellowship at Rady, which basically said more than five-degree Cobb increase and more vertebrae added on into the curve or more than a five degree increase in the disc uh, below the construct is distal adding on. And that was associated with worse health related quality of life. So what I wanted to ask you about this whole concept is what is the biggest mistake that you see surgeons making leading to distal adding on? Well, I think probably the highest risk 
curve for adding on is the is the one a r variety the the one that hang overhangs to the right where l4 is tilted to the right that curve uh is typically a flexible lumbar curve it's an a modifier uh and it's usually a, a two a one or a two and so we don't have a structural lumbar curve we're going to only fuse the thoracic curve maybe the upper thoracic curve and picking that lowest instrumented vertebra for that curve pattern it's so tempting to go short because the lumbar component of that is so flexible. And if you take a supine film, it looks like you should stop higher. And if you take a bending film, you can't imagine why you would fuse down so low. But the adding on risk in that curve just seems to be really uh, troubling. And so I think the biggest risk is, is fusing a 1AR curve to something less than what we've termed the last substantially touched or, or the one in which the center cycle vertical line touches the pedicle, not just the vertebra. And so last touch or just doesn't quite, isn't quite good enough for that curve pattern. And, and you really have to, to touch the pedicle or be medial to the pedicle with your center cycle vertical line. Uh, I would say that's true. Uh, there are some nuances to that. I cheat that rule periodically as well. The younger you are, as a surgeon, the younger you are as a patient, uh, both of those should cause you not to cheat the rule. Um, and, and if you're talking about whether to fuse to L3 or L4, you don't need to use that rule. Okay. So if you're using that rule and it tells you to go to L4, no, no, no. Use, use other, use the same rules that you would normally use for determining whether to go to L3 or L4, but not, not that one. So, uh, it's really trying to get you to L2 instead of L1. Uh, is probably the most uh, most common difference that uh, that rule is is rule uh, that guidance is driving. So to go back a little further in time, back two Novembers ago in JBJS, you were involved in a study with the Harms Study Group called "Selecting the Touched Vertebra as the Lowest Instrument of Vertebra in Patients with Lanky Type One and Type Two Curves," and the conclusion is basically if you fuse to the lowest touch vertebra, um, it usually works. More seems to be unnecessary and sacrifices motion. Less seems to lead to more translation. Except in the one AR curve. Except in the one AR <laughs> curve. All right, that's that's my question. Fair enough. And I and I think I emailed or texted you after I read that study initially to see if I should uh, rethink those rules slash guidance. Okay, so except in the one AR curve. Yeah, and you, you touched on a little. I'd like <clears throat> you to expand if you would for a minute, Doctor Newton. So you know, going into practice, I really tried to follow your rules and a lot of the stuff that I think has good data. And what I found is that my corrections just weren't as good, right? Not, not even close to what you would get. And I would try and I would do, and I'm just curious. And you, you mentioned, you know, in a younger patient or in a younger surgeon, certainly not cheating girls and maybe doing a little more for our, for our younger listeners earlier in practice, what advice would you give us as far as strictly adhering to some of the published rules versus really feeling like we follow those rules and maybe a little bit more just as we're getting our correction techniques a little more dialed in as we're able to get better balance in both planes with our, with our kind of primary correction. Yeah, it's a great point. The lowest instrumented vertebra, it gets so much attention as to that decision-making process because it's so controversial and it, and it, it varies so much by surgeon. But the reason that I think that it varies is uh, as you suggested, what we do above that lowest instrumented vertebra 
has a lot to do with what lowest instrumented vertebrae you should pick. <laughs> and so I think you can have different vertebrae, you know, again, based on, on what your correction strategies are and what your correction obtained is. And so it, it's not, it's not always so easy. I, I try to suggest things that I think will apply, you know, to everybody, but your point is well taken. You, it takes a lot of years and a lot of reps to uh, master scoliosis surgery. And it's, it's just not that easy. And, uh, and what you, if you spend your time focusing on safely getting in the screws and putting them in the right place, that should be your first kind of goal. And then you got to figure out what you're going to do with those screws with whatever rod you decide to pick and bend to whatever shape you bend to get the ultimate correction you're going to get. And I, I guess that's the other point to make is that focusing on levels uh, in addition to screws is, is important, but it's what you do with those screws that ultimately results in the correction that you obtain both with, you know, releases and compression, distraction, whatever, whatever correction strategies you use and the manipulation of those vertebrae in space ultimately determines where that fuse spine ends up and where that fuse spine ends up determines what happens to the unfused spine above and below it, which is what you really care about. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Well, I will, uh, Take that as another uh, segue to go to a spine deformity article, January 2022 publication. Again, this one is called Factors Associated with Increased Back Pain in Primary Thoracic AIS 10 Years After Surgery. I thought this was fascinating, um, but your study group basically found that patients with more than 26 degrees of curve 10 years after their AIS surgery had more back pain. So the traditional thinking has been that you don't need to stress over the correction that much. You know, sometimes we even call it like radiographic cosmesis. Um, you just need to stop these curves from getting worse. Does this study mean we should be getting every curve as, as straight as possible? Yeah, I think that's an important question. And, and obviously you can make something straight and quote imbalanced and be problematic. And you can make something, leave something crooked, but quote imbalanced and have it, you know, everybody be happy. So yeah. Um, obviously, it's a melding of those two. Uh, if you can be straight and balanced, who wouldn't want that? So I, I think that should be our goal. Uh, I do think that we've improved scoliosis correction in my career. It's uh, We get better correction today than when I started. I think we should continue to try to make the unfused spine in response to the fused spine as straight as possible. So I uh, I do think that there is advantages to having a 20 degree curve rather than a 20, 30 degree residual curve. And, you know, you know how Tracy will be mad at me for saying this, but you know how the statistics works in this sort of stuff. You, you, it, it spits out the, the answer is 26 degrees and everyone goes, well, why is it 26 degrees? Well, that's just what the data said. You run this number again on a different set of patients. It might be 23 or 25 or 28 or 20. So I don't think we need to, to go crazy on the idea that 26 is the number. But I think a lot of us have thought, you know, again, balance 40-40, 30-30, no problem. I now have some of my balance 30-30s showing up, you know, at 20 years with uh, increasing lumbar curve and degeneration and, and progression. So I'd like to be balanced at 
So I remember some cases, and you know, I've heard this from multiple other mentors as well. So a very balanced double major curve, maybe it gets above 45 to 50, maybe it gets to 55, but it's still balanced. I, I think I remember you, you know, saying those in those cases, you maybe let it go to 55 or 60 because it's well balanced. Is that still your opinion? Did I make that up? Was that never your opinion? Or does this sort of, you know, this finding that that residual curve 10 years later is associated with pain, does that change? Well, I think we have approach? to be, we, I think we do have to be cognizant of two different things. Uh, one is the untreated patient with uh, balanced 50 degree curves versus the treated patient with a residual curve in the lumbar spine of, you know, something probably less than 50 that would <laughs> be something that I would be shooting for. But let's just go back to, I think what your original question was, was the untreated 50, yep. 50 balanced curve, skeletally mature, what do you do? Um, I think that's a that's another area where I think there's a fair bit of equipoise. Uh, not because I think that that 50, 50 is necessarily going to roll through life without any troubles. But when are they going to have trouble? And will that ever really be enough of a problem to, to go for? Many of those patients will, I, I believe, will progress. And at what rate do balanced patients progress at less quickly than unbalanced patients? I don't know. Do they become more symptomatic uh, or less symptomatic or take longer to become symptomatic? I don't really know. I think, I think it, it might be the case. You know, in our practice of teenagers and kids, young adults, the, the trouble is double 50, 50 degree balance curves. If you're not going to treat it, uh, and I'm totally comfortable leaving those alone, uh, but at some point you have to make a decision in your life when you're going, you're probably going to have to still make a decision about when you're going to treat it. And the good news is if you're, if you're mature and balanced, that can be you know, after high school, after college, after your something career or after your what I mean, it, 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 there's so many options about when you can choose to do that or just wait it out and deal with it later. So I don't I don't think there's any urgency to it. And, and sometimes we have the opportunity to watch these for five or 10 years and let them declare themselves. Uh, if you're if your patients leave you at 18, you probably don't have that luxury. But I still have got lots of people coming back at 25 to, for me to try to figure out what happened between at 15, 20 and 25 and have they progressed. And if they haven't and they're doing okay and they want to keep going, it's fine. So this next study journal of orthopedic research also late last year brought back some, uh, some memories. I think we all remember doing cases with you and during every case, I hadn't thought about this for a few years, but we would run off a little bit of muscle from each side and send it to the lab for analysis and uh, there's been a couple studies recently growing out of that that effort. This one's called Paraspinal Muscle Morphology and Composition in Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis, a Histological Analysis. And the conclusion is basically that paraspinal muscle in AIS is atrophic compared to, to normal backs. It's different from one side to the other, but it's atrophic on both sides of the spine. It's not like it's stronger on the convex side or anything. So what do you make of these findings? Is this the... The problem underlying AIS? Is this a symptom of the problem? Is it neither? Yeah, I, I guess I still am probably a much stronger believer that these are uh, secondary changes rather than primary changes. But it is it is pretty interesting to see this sort of fatty infiltration 
be something that we've sort of learned about in, in the adult degenerative world be manifesting itself in, in teenagers with spinal deformity. And I would not be surprised if there is a subset of idiopathic scoliosis in which there may be a primary muscle disorder. I, I would be comfortable with that assumption the same way that kids with muscular dystrophy or spastic muscle get scoliosis, that some you know subclinical form of muscle disease gets, gets idiopathic scoliosis. I can live with that. Um, but I can't live with the idea that that's true for all patients with idiopathic scoliosis. And so for that reason, I think it seems likely that particularly the right-left differences are just the differences in loading and, and what's happening to the muscle. It's not, it's not working the way it's supposed to work once the deformity is developed. All right. So another spine deformity uh, article, this one is going back a little further, but I just thought it was uh, very interesting. So this was a harm study group paper in search of the ever elusive post-operative shoulder balance is the T2 upper instrumented vertebra, the key. And uh, you and your co-authors found that uh, when the upper instrumented vertebra was T4, the balance of the shoulders was better than T2 or T3, regardless of the pre-op shoulder balance, which, you know, goes in the face of the old left shoulder higher T2, even T3, right shoulder higher T4 dogma. However, fusing higher did correct the upper thoracic curve. It just didn't balance the shoulders better. What are you using these days for your upper instrument of vertebra uh, selection? And did this, this finding with T4 doing so well change your approach at all? You know, uh, it didn't. Uh, you know, this is classic, you know, where you uh, <laughs> do multi-center research and, uh, and still don't change what you find. And many, many research studies suffer from this challenge of being, you know, just so biased uh, by the selection of who had fusions to T4 versus fusion, those who had fusions to T2. I mean, they're just not the same patients. So yeah. it really is difficult to make comparisons here. But I think that the other important thing to understand about shoulder balances, and I've looked at it a couple of times over a couple of different papers, is that we can make T2 horizontal, and sometimes we can, sometimes we can't, but let's just say we can. By the time that vertebra is connected to the scapula, there's a lot of things that have happened. I mean, you've gone through the rib to the sternum, to the clavicle, to the AC joint before you get to the scapula. So the idea that we have perfect control of where the scapula lands by adjusting the height of a vertebra you know, four linkages uh, uh, upstream is is optimistic. But there's a lot of things that control shoulder balance. Some of it's muscle, some of it's bony, some of it is just where the scapula lands on a misshapen rib cage. But there's no question that if you take a right thoracic curve that has uh, level shoulders or a high left shoulder and you do not address the upper thoracic curve, you're going to make the left shoulder even higher. And I remember sort of a classic quote from Sook saying, I go to T2 unless the right shoulder isn't at least one centimeter low. You know, I mean, it's, it's not that it's got to be, it's not, I mean, it's got to be, sorry, high, sorry, one centimeter high. It's got to be so high that I won't go to T2 just because making that massive correction drives the left shoulder up. So I, I do think that's a, a tendency that has occurred over the, you know, the, the recent past with increasing scoliosis correction we are fusing the upper thoracic spine longer to try to manage shoulder imbalance that results from significant substantial uh, correction of the main thoracic curve. So I don't think I've fused anybody to 
T4 or below in the last five years, if I had to guess. Maybe there's one or two in there, but it's usually oh. T2 or T3 for me. And how do you judge that intra-op? Is that, um, you know, because I, I do the same thing of trying to get that upper curve better and getting my, my top vertebrae more transverse. But I know, just like you said, that doesn't directly correlate with shoulders. Do you do anything else intra-op to really assess your shoulder height? Or are you just kind of your preoperative planning, assuming that you do your correction well and what you think you're going to do and your history would tell you the shoulders end up pretty well? You know, I, I think the only thing I really shoot for is getting T2 square uh, and level and the rest of it just is what it is. I, I feel like that's not not what I'm doing. I'm operating on the spine and I'm not operating on the clavicle, the sternum or the rib or the chromium or anything else. So, Okay, perfect. So this is a JPO article 2020. Is anterior release obsolete or does it play a role in contemporary AIS surgery? My, my fellow happened to just sort of ask that today. And I said, well, I don't know, but I'll ask Dr. Newton. So uh, is anterior release necessary in some AIS cases? I remember doing a handful with you. I, I don't think any of them were AIS cases, though. Uh, I just did one last week. The answer is hell yes. <laughs> hell yes, not obsolete. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, I, I think that uh, the more I have learned about the three-dimensional nature of scoliosis, particularly the lordosis and its extent within the thoracic spine for thoracic scoliosis, the more I have uh, become comfortable in, in just saying there is no way I'm going to be able to restore this kyphosis unless I take these discs out and being comfortable with just doing that. So to derotate the apex and to put kyphosis back into the spine in severe cases requires anterior column shortening. And I can't do it uh, all from the back. And uh, I'm very, very happy every time I do it. Uh, I, I don't do it sometimes and I wish I had, but I rarely do it and say, boy, that was a waste of time. So, yep, I'm still a fan. And you're judging that mostly off of the thoracic lordosis and rotation more so than any Cobb measurement or coronal severity. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. I think it really is the axial and the sagittal planes that are difficult to correct. I mean, we, we can do all sorts of stuff in the, in the coronal plane. You guys all appreciate that. That's the, that's the easy plane to correct, but to put the sagittal and the axial on top of that is too much to ask to do it all from the back in big cases. That was kind of fun. A fun little yes or no question. I've got, I've got another one for you. This was a uh, spine deformity 2021 uh, November article. What's the effect of intraoperative traction on correction of AIS? So are you ever using intraoperative traction for AIS cases? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I use it probably fairly routinely for curves over 80 degrees or something like that. I, I think it does help take a little bit of that uh, coronal deformity out of it straight away. There are lots of ways to do traction. And I, I think personally, I find it safer to fix the length of the traction applied rather than hang weights and allow the spine to keep getting longer over time. So I prefer to stress relax rather than creep if we can go back to those old uh, viscoelastic terms. But I think that is a safer way to do it. And I that's how I do it. So anyway, I hold the head, pull on the legs, hold the legs, pull on the head, and then hold it there. The only problem with that is I have no idea how hard I'm pulling. <laughs> I 
there's no weight involved. And so is it, is it Gardner Wells tongs and skin traction on the legs or what do you, what's your setup? I use a, a OSI table, a Jackson table and put the Mayfield tongs on the head rather than the Gardner Wells so that I can just lock the position of the head on the, on the rail. And then we use the trauma frame on the bottom of the table and use the, the traction boots that Julia uses for her femur fractures. <laughs> All right. Last one, another Spine Deformity 2021 back from March. This was called Intraoperative Neuromonitoring Practice Patterns in Spinal Deformity Surgery. And the conclusion was basically that there is tons of variation among spine surgeons. So for routine neuromonitoring, are you routinely monitoring the upper extremities as well as the lowers? Yes, absolutely. We, we catch a, an ulnar nerve palsy periodically or a brachial plexus from an arm falling off the arm board. Uh, even though we strap them on. I mean, I think there's all sorts of reasons to to check the upper extremities. And also, it, it's a really valuable control if you lose your legs. So absolutely, I think you should be keeping track of the arms as well. And I bet you we have, we have arm changes more often than we have leg changes these days, fortunately. <laughs> if the signals decrease, are you using steroids routinely? No, not at least not the big big time steroids. I think it's reasonable to use a little Decadron. We're getting a little bit of that on the front end by anesthesia these days anyway, for a lot of cases, but uh, I'm not using a big methylprednisolone uh, protocol anymore. And last question from this study that they, they asked uh, spine surgeons, after an uneventful case, if you're going intubated to the ICU, do you do any exam, do you decrease sedation at all to, to check a neuro exam or you trust the neuromonitoring and send them on their way? That's a really good question. Uh, it's, it's been something that has uh, come up at our place uh, with Mike uh, joining. The Wash U routine was to do a wake-up test before leaving the room, no matter what. And that has not been our routine, as you guys know. If we have solid neuromonitoring, we do not do a wake-up test. But I do want a recovery room exam. So uh, if you're going to the ICU at some point, you know, we need a confirmatory exam. I don't need it in the operating room if I've got good monitoring, but I want to know, you know, before two days goes by or something like that. So, yeah, I do think you need to wake them up enough to, to get an exam. The ones that are going to the ICU most commonly are the neuromuscular kids, and they're the hardest ones to get the exam on. But waking them up to see everything move, I, I think, is still valuable before you kind of knock them out for the night. Awesome. Well, that is, uh, that's all I've got for you. Thank you. As always, I've learned a lot. I've realized there's a lot of stuff I didn't know that I didn't know that I need to go uh, learn about. Thank you for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. It's uh, great to see you all and uh, good to talk. And uh, I'll let you get back to the game. really an honor it's a pleasure to have you on and to share so much of your knowledge with us happy to do it i'm glad he didn't ask me what the uh what the conclusions of each of those papers were i was going to really be in trouble so i'm, I'm glad <laughs> you told me what the answers were before you asked me the questions